Hello and welcome to the Infinite Improvisation Podcast, Adventures in Music and Creativity. We continue our interview series today with Siliana Shiliashka. Siliana is a pianist, educator, and a lifelong learner. She started taking piano lessons a little before turning six, and the instrument's beautiful tone has captured her imagination ever since. She debuted with the Vrasta Orchestra, I hope I pronounced that correctly, when she was 10 years old and found that to be the most thrilling experience. She now has a bachelor and master's degrees in piano performance and has a deep interest in understanding how people learn when they learn music and how to nurture a child's inborn music potential. Welcome. Thank you so much. And of course, I'm joined by my co-host, Steve Tressler, as well. Hello. So, Siliana, where in the world are you right now? Right now, I'm in uh, a small town in California, sort of central California. Wonderful. And where, where were you when you debuted with this orchestra in childhood? I was in my hometown in Bulgaria. Uh, which is in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a teacher who was an, um, actually an amazing improviser, composer, arranger, all of that. Um, surprisingly, he never taught me any of those skills. <laughs> oh. But uh, he arranged a lot of things for me. And he did uh, arrange something, a short piece, uh, I think it was a Bach Jeek, uh, for me to play with the local orchestra. And then the following year, I played a bigger piece, a concertino with the same orchestra, but uh, he was quite amazing at doing that sort of thing. Wow, and what an experience to have as a young person with with a whole orchestra. Was that the first time that you'd... Absolutely. Yeah, was that the first time that you'd been with like that many instruments? Yes, and actually I only got one rehearsal. So it was just that one rehearsal, it was a, like a dress rehearsal, and then it was the concert, mm -hmm. and the following year it was the same thing. Um, but of course, I, I played a lot with my teacher, as you know, him on the, the other piano mm -hmm. company. Cool. Wow, I, j just amazing to imagine all those vibrations with, with such a little person at that age. Uh, do, do you want to tell us any more about that? Like how that inspired or influenced you as you continued to today? Yeah, you know, I often look back on my earliest training and we can't, you know, as adults, we can't remember every little detail of our musical upbringing. But um, we did have a, a teacher who nurtured the love for music in me. Um, by just involving me in a lot of um, performances, local performances. Um, he also always came with me to competitions, he always actually came to whatever I was going to another city. Um, and he supported me uh, very much in, in, that, uh, uh, in that undertaking. But um, going back from the very earliest of years, when I was uh, perhaps a baby, um, I had very musical parents. Uh, both of my parents play instruments and sing, and I was basically immersed in the musical environment since I was a newborn um, with a lot of live singing and live uh, playing of music. My dad is a guitarist and my mom is a singer. So I had this experience, which I think was uh, very 
influential in you know nurturing the musicality that I believe every child is born with. Um, and I think I was three years old when my parents actually bought a piano um, and they just put it there <laughs> and it was there for me to play around with. Um, and they tell me that I did poke around it and I tried to uh, pick up songs by ear um, and things like that. But I didn't start form formal lessons until I was um, almost six years old. Mm. And that's when I started with this particular teacher who was extremely friendly and supportive. He became a very um, personal friend to my family um, and very often played for me. I think that was a, a big uh, motivator for me that he hmm. actually played big pieces for me and I was able to hear them and uh, get motivated. But I also sung so that I was part of a kid's uh, music school. And uh, I, so we had solfege, we had singing, we had, I think it was twice a week. So one, uh, one time it was just singing, um, learning to sing solfege. And then the other time it was uh, taking dictations and working on the ear. And then I had my lesson, which I believe also was twice a week. So it was like three to four times a week I was going to that school and I was pretty involved in music. <laughs> Um, so I think that in itself, and I had friends that were also there, and we had a little community, which I also believe was uh, a big motivator. Everybody is together making music and performing for each other. We had um, many little recitals that happened throughout the year. Um, and it was more like a performance class and sometimes a formal recital that was outside in a concert hall. Mm. So it was, it was quite fun. I don't remember it being uh, too stressful. It's like you had your own mini conservatory there, all those different areas of learning and community. Absolutely, of yeah. To play it was with. a little. That's what a lot of people are missing. You go to your piano lesson once a week and you're by yourself the rest of the time, you know, not having that community. Um, yeah, so we were yeah, interested in bringing you on to the show because we've just been, you know, we've crossed paths online and just seeing what you're, what you're posting about your various educational projects and programs and just sharing what you're learning as you continue to be seemingly a life, lifelong learner on teaching, learning, and pedagogy, and you're posting quotes and some maybe hot takes and getting some good discussions discussions going. But yeah, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, and hearing yeah, hearing about your background, is what are, um, whereas you see possibly some gaps in traditional, maybe Western music education, and, you know, what, what kind of things that you're looking at to help um, bring like a more holistic music education approach kind of a big big question but just kind of Huge, your, your take yeah. on things yeah so you can take one yeah take that in any direction you want yeah um i think i i could take it in many directions mm -hmm. um and i think every time i get asked that question it goes someplace mm -hmm. different uh but it is a question that i think all of us as educators have to ask all the time um not only because there are always gaps, but also because um, life changes, society changes, society needs change. And we can't just teach the same way all the time, the way that we were taught or the way that our parents or grandparents were taught or were teaching. So we have to keep up with the needs of society, with the ways people learn, with the new discoveries in, in that field. Um, I think it's a huge gap in my own musical upbringing that I didn't learn to be creative. 
from the very beginning because that is the best time to learn. Children are naturally creative beings. They crave to be creative and they learn and retain information in that, um, uh, in that kind of environment uh, rather than, so I often say this, I learned a lot about music. I always scored 100% on all my theory tests and ear training tests and I had perfect pitch and all my classmates had perfect pitch. But eventually that didn't serve me as much as you would think. Um, because even though I learned a lot about, about music, I didn't learn enough music itself. So learning about music is learning all the theoretical understanding or not really understanding all the terms and, you know, all the notes, note names and all the, all the musical markings and stuff, uh, learning the names of things. Uh, rather than experiencing those things and playing around with those things. So uh, also I missed out on being a really well-rounded musician by just being so narrow focused on just a single thing. And that was to play the classical repertoire, to play the, you know, the scales, whatever was on the exam. Uh, because I was doing exams. I was doing, you know, the kind of exams that every child does when they have a more serious intention in instrumental studies. And I think those were not uh, the best for me in terms of my musical growth. And I see that as a teacher now with all my experience that um, it's not always the best route for students. So how has that changed or influenced how you approach things with your own students or, or as a musical parent even? We both have, have young musical children as well. And as we both know, yeah. <laughs> musical parenting and teaching kids of the same age is, is two different categories mm -hmm. too. <laughs> it's so hard, yeah. I found it very challenging to teach my own kids. And so for that reason, I, they have their own teachers. Um, Same. but it was very important to me, yeah, not to, not for, for them not to experience music the same way I did when I was a child. Uh, first of all, they don't have that time. Um, and second, just life is different. They have a lot more distractions. And, um, and third, I think they would benefit from these more functional musical skills where they can actually go to a party, um, and play. <laughs> And actually that happened to us um, about a month ago, we went to visit someone's house and they were taking, you know, traditional, um, at this time I'm gonna talk about traditional versus standard, but they were taking the, you know, traditional lessons and uh, the, you know, the child had a grand piano in the living room and the, the mom of the child said, well, why don't you sit down and play something? And the child started to um, fiddle around and uh, look for the book. Um, and the child finally found the book and by this time, my two kids had sat down and played uh, several pieces <laughs> on the piano without any book. Um, and, and then the child finally came up to the piano and uh, they were struggling. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've, I remember as a child actually having that kind of experience thinking, oh, I'm in front of this piano. It's so exciting. And then thinking, but what do I do now? <laughs> I don't I don't have any music with me and for a period of time I started carrying around with me 
like a thick stack of music just in case I was near a piano because I didn't want to be without mm-hmm. music in a position where I wanted to play. <laughs> I've had this experience many times as an adult, as an advanced pianist mm-hmm. too. You know, oh, I haven't warmed up or, you know, I don't feel like this piece is up to... Yeah. Or I'm working on a new piece and it's not ready yet and I haven't played the old piece in a there long we time. Go. But yeah, I think there's something something special, something yeah, I think about with my students. You know, having something ready to play. Some relatives come over and you're ready to play music and, and share something. Exactly. So, you know, and I have to always ask myself, is the way that I'm teaching serving my students long term? And how long term? Is, is it a lifelong skill that I'm providing to them to learn? Or is it something in the moment and they'll forget all about it when they stop taking lessons? Mm. Mm. And so yeah, tell us about your, your teaching practice. You largely teach private lessons and group lessons. Are you involved in any, is it all your own, your own studio? Or do you, are you part of any other organizations or music schools or anything? It's my own studio, so I've always taught privately for um, about 20, over a little over 20 years. Um, and at one point during the pandemic, I decided to start over. <laughs> I went back to school. I got my master's degree um, then because I just felt like I, I needed a, an outlet for that. I, I wanted to perform more and play more and practice, and I had the time. Uh, but also I wanted to completely restructure the way I taught um, based on music learning theory. So can you tell us? And so I basically started from scratch. Yeah, so can, tell us a bit more about that moment, about that that bold, that you know, that it's a very bold and courageous move. So what, was there a, I'm sure it built over time, but was there a particular moment yes. or, or period of time where you collided with music learning theory and then you decided to mix things up? Or tell us a bit about that time. Yeah, I think it was gradual. Uh, you know, a gradual build up. Uh, I, I would say that the very first time I taught my very first lesson, opening up, you know, one of the method books that is out there and going through the first few pieces, I already intuitively knew that some of these things are out of place. I just didn't know why and I didn't know how. Um, and it was kind of a, it took me several years to start to, you know, look for answers. Um, that are very specific to the problems that I saw. And so music learning theory comes as a, as a great help because it explains the sequence of learning music. How does our brain learn music? What do we need to know before we learn the next thing? Mm-hmm. And, and so it sets up the student for success. And I think that's where a lot of the traditional ways of teaching fall short because we hear a lot of kids giving up or um, sort of coming up to a wall and not being able to go over it um, after a couple of years of lessons and just feeling very unmotivated and um, you know, having that, having learned from the model of the teacher preaches what it is to be learned mm-hmm. and the student parrots it back. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be so blunt, but it, it is kind of like that. Totally. Yeah. So tell us more about music learning theory. It's something that I've been curious to learn more about and some teachers I really admire, you know, are, uh, it's a, it's a big part of their, 
of their practice. So I mean, I know, you know, familiar with Gordon's concept of audiation. That's something we've talked about on the podcast before, which I describe as like visualization, but for music where you can hear sounds in your head when there's not actually a sound source present and understanding, looking at that at different, exactly right. different, different ways. So if that, if I describe that, okay. And I know that's a c- central part of, of MLT, but yeah, tell, tell me more or if, yeah, I didn't get that right. Mm-hmm. And for Absolutely. our listeners. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> well, yeah, MLT is is basically um, it's more than audiation, but yes, Gordon Edwin Gordon coined the term audiation. Um, it is exactly what you describe. It is um, it it's like we're having a conversation right now. Um, you're listening to what I'm saying, but you you've already retained what I just said, and you are also expecting what I'm going to say next, or you have a good idea maybe. If I say um, my name is Siliana and I'm a music teacher. <laughs> you would know that you would expect that the next word would be teacher. So it's basically equipping students with um, that ability to be able to um, understand and think within the context of music, the, the music that they're playing, um, and also make informed predictions of uh, what they're gonna hear next. It's very interesting. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I remember reading what was the book? This is your brain on music. You know, some of the neuroscience of music <laughs> and how we perceive it. And so much of that is that we're, we're we're constantly trying to predict what's coming up next, and we want our expectations to be satisfied. But then we also like being surprised. Otherwise, it's like a you know a, a movie where you know everything. You know, there's no twists in the plot where you know what's going to happen. And if it's too predictable, you, we tend to get a little yes. more bored. Whereas if it's always changing and there's not that kind of um, cohesion, then we just get lost and can't, you know, can't figure out what's what's going on. Yeah, so. and I think that's where the whole fun in learning this way comes into play because you'll learn to play with things. So you not only learn the music that you're supposed to be learning the way it's written, but you also, you know, take thematic material from it and you develop it in your own way you may decide to change it any way that you know how. You can reharmonize it, you can just play around with it, you can invert it, you can extend it. Um, Improvisation solidifies learning, that's a fact. Uh, Because if we play with something, we get to know it on a much deeper level than if we just read it once or read it, you know, with that, so keep reading it the same way. We don't really connect with it that yeah, way, that yeah. same way. And that's how we learn, you know, with, with language too. You know, we babble and play around with sounds and putting things together in different ways, which is really how we solidify language. It's not, you know, with our children when they're young, it's not just completely, you know, sounds by rote. You know, there's that, you know, Victor would call it like, jam, it's like we're jamming, jamming with the syllables and the sounds and put it together. Absolutely. And, and Gordon, uh, Gordon's learning theory is, um, does talk about babbling as one of the, the beginning stages of, of oh. learning music cool. called babble. <laughs> uh-huh. So how has improvisation and, and music learning theory in general, but as you've incorporated this into your teaching, how has it influenced your own practice? You talked about not having access to improvisation, let's say, <laughs> as, as a young person or not being introduced to it as a young person, how has that changed over time? Oh my gosh, it's changed so much. The way I practice my own pieces now, I just love to, there's, there's so much 
beautiful music written <laughs> and there's so much to play with and have fun with um so i would just be learning a piece and i would just then go off on a you know a creative journey with a little melody that i like from there mm -hmm. um and of course my kids are around me they see it they hear that and uh, my younger girl just loves to improvise and she in fact that's still her favorite activity to do with me at the piano so she would come up to me and she say, mom, I want to make up a song. And then I have many, uh, you know, five to 10 minute long jam sessions with her recording, uh, recordings of jam sessions. And we just, she, the, if, if I don't stop, she won't. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a great, um, I think, food for the mind. Um, it really relaxes her. She, she started doing that when she was four. And she just turned six and she still loves it. Mm. So it's changed a lot of the dynamic between myself and my kids mm. when we make music. Um, it's changed the way I practice. It's opened up a whole new world to me that's full of possibilities and color. Mm. That's amazing. Yes, I've, my daughter's 10. And similarly, like I would bring her to other folks for lessons because when we would get to, it was very clear, you know, that boring dad giving a lesson on a half step or a whole step or that that was just not going to fly but she likes to jam so someone else got some awesome teachers who she adores and wants to hang out with that she sees every week and they do more of the technical stuff but then yeah we'll jam and she'll like hey let's you know play a song about you know the pet bunny when she's hungry here we'll you know we'll just make up make up songs or start jams and it's it's yeah and that's been a super awesome way to connect and play music without you know being being the teacher but i know yeah i know lauren yeah you you know you do teach your own child so there's different yeah different ways of um going about that uh but what i wanted to yeah touch on is that idea of you take some of these themes and you know play them in your own way add and change them that this music isn't so i mean that, that's initially even you know classical music that was how it was written the performers were expected to embellish and change and improvise variations you know, so this idea of it's all off the page exactly as written, that's fairly recent. But yeah, I love that as a gateway to improvisation with students, you know, take a familiar theme and now we're just gonna, some, like, we're just gonna mess around with it. Now play it in this mood or that mood or add something. And that is improvisation, right? It doesn't have to be just a, you know, a, a solo or a piece that just kind of drops out of the sky, you know, comes out of nowhere, but doing that, you know, rearranging and changing and embellishments. Um, yeah, so it's an amazing way to to get started, but also, yeah, continue uh, even as someone yeah, who's and, more advanced in your can career. Be, yeah, it can be uh, random and chaotic. And, and you know, Gordon uh, actually makes the distinction between um, creativity, uh, exploration, creativity, and improvisation. Oh. They're kind of on a continuum. And you can uh, just explore, which is just exploring, basically just seeing what's there and what it sounds like. You can create, let's say, um, you know, create a, something that sounds like a cat or something that sounds like, mm. uh, you know, an antelope galloping. Um, and then improvisation where you actually uh, put in a framework uh, within which the student works. Um, but I want, wanted to also uh, just affirm <laughs> the point that you were making earlier that uh, and make distinction of uh, traditional versus standard. Traditional is what you just said. It's uh, mm. actually when we go back and look at the Baroque period and classical period, mm. um, people were 
taught this way that to improvise and to play with ideas. It's only recent, fairly recent. Um, I don't know, is it a hundred years or so that uh, the standard way of, of uh, teaching and learning has is this model that we often see, which is just playing exact and listening to your teacher, and mm -hmm. and that's it. Yeah, like I think even until like the time of Brahms or something, that, could that learning was done this way. This is yeah something we've discussed before. Yeah, it has to do with yeah the industrial revolution. You know, more sheet music being print printed, so people are learning more from yes. rather than more of an apprenticeship model of learning, like how jazz musicians. Um, or you know a lot of music um, from all over the world, more oral traditions and learning directly transmitted from the teacher. Now so much more was written down, it became a crutch in in some ways. Hmm. Yeah, and I I always say that we have so much as classical pianists, we have so much to learn from jazz musicians. We have so much to learn from um, music educators in the classroom, and we have so much to learn from other cultures and the way they make music. Um, and we have to be learning from all these different places because it it just enriches what we do and and how we understand uh, our line of work. Hmm. I could I could hear when you say enriches, I could hear like the joy and the the sort of richness of play when you talked about improvising and how there's so much to explore. And from I mean, you also talked very warmly about your childhood musical experiences. But as you were, as this, the sort of the world of improvisation was unfolding to you, because it sounds like you said that was a big change. Were there particular gateways to that, or things that started to open that door to you, or did you just jump in with glee and that much joy and play right away? No, I always looked from the outside in uh, on people who had disability that seemed so impossible. <laughs> you know, for me, um, I would say I really came in close contact with it when I had a duet partner in university for three years. Uh, my partner, Chris, uh, with whom we played everything from Ravel to Rachmaninoff, and we, we practiced many hours almost every day, um, and it was so much fun. But what he did differently that I didn't do is he improvised. So anytime we would practice something, he would just go off and do his thing and be amazed. And I would just dream about being able to do that. And I, I'm still not able to do it to that level that he did, but it, it came so naturally to him. And then, you know, I found out that he had always done that since he was a young child, mm. that nobody ever prevented him from doing it. Um, and that he had access to this sort of um, skill mm. he learned how to do. Mm. So you saw that. Yeah, like you so it was, oh. well, yeah. So you saw that modeled, and then how did how did you get like <laughs> you saw that modeled? It sounds like it sort of opened the doorway of your mind. But how did you step through that doorway? Were there baby steps that that really you know started that for you, or was it more like you know taking a deep breath and jumping? <laughs> Both. Um, I did take some jazz lessons um, right after I graduated from my bachelor's. So I studied with some jazz teachers here and there uh, when I moved back to Bulgaria. Uh, studied with a pretty famous one there. and um, But it wasn't very methodical. <laughs> this is kind of just, uh, she, she, yeah, she was very, uh, she's taught a lot of advanced jazz players. So I, I was only a beginner and it, it didn't work out very well. Um, 
but I, I t- kind of lean into that way of, of doing things. Um, and then I left it for a while. And then, you know, the next time I got interested in it is when I started to teaching my own kids and, uh, you know, just wanting them to love music mm-hmm. um, and to, you know, research mm. ways in which I could be a better teacher mm. and equip my students with more lasting skills, more functional skills. Yeah. Um, and of course, I wasn't going to just teach those things. <laughs> I was going to do them myself. Mm-hmm. So... Mm. I would say it's pretty gradual. Mm. Yeah. And it goes, it goes learning. back to what you're saying about, you know, starting this when children are young, you know, where the creativity is you know, part of the human experience. We're all naturally creative, you know, when kids are young and doing it before they're self-conscious or, you know, worried about social pressures or have some identity about a level of skill. It's like they're just freely, you know, freely, freely playing. And it becomes, yeah, it can be more, yeah, challenging to kind of untangle as we get as we mm. get older. And and, and what a, a beautiful thing it is to teach those what we view as advanced skills um, at the very earliest of stages. You know, mm. you learn to improvise, you learn to transpose, you learn to arrange and reharmonize mm. with when you're a beginner in your first couple of years. Yeah. So you you learn to reduce something to a baseline, and it's just mm. beautiful. Mm. I really relate to what you said that um, I found teaching young children and exploring their creativity, but also with my own kids, seeing how they managed just fine with music and creativity when I didn't show them those things. (laughs) They just did those things, you know, and I thought, oh, I'm not teaching my children enough music. And then I would see they would just blossom anyways. (laughs) And um, I really related to what you said about this gradual feedback loop of the more you take interest in in the basics and in... um, in in encouraging children then we can take that kind of encouraging and and actually like loving approach to our own to our own learning that when i try to approach it from a respectable adult point of view and mm-hmm. learn from respected adults and <laughs> impress the adults around me i had a much different experience than when i took what i was doing to nurture children and to to learn from um how i could change how I nurtured children within music um, and applied it to myself. Yeah, beautifully said. Absolutely. I agree. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, we, we want our children to have musical experiences. Mm-hmm. Real musical experiences. Uh, uh, real musical experiences. Absolutely. So, Siliana, I know we're sort of pre- preaching to the choir here, but how it's still in this world of, I suppose, as you would say, standard music education rather than traditional like that, but sort of, c- you know, contemporary Western music education, there's still a critical mass of people that think this, you know, creativity, improvisation, that it's not relevant, you know, whether it's, you know, we're, we're getting ready for a competition or, you know, there's a lot of folks that say, oh, well, this, you know, sounds like a fun little enrichment activity, but we don't have time for that. We're getting ready for the orchestra concert, you know, not seeing how this is, relevant or valuable as a part of of training um what yeah um how would you yeah articulate you know the the value and how you know how this really can be a cornerstone of music education and why it's relevant and important well here here is the hard truth Mm -hmm. um 
there are a few, uh, when you look at it in a global sense, uh, a few musicians who survive and make it, make it big, despite the system. They survive it because they have a, an unusually high aptitude and they're just, you know, up there with their natural abilities. But what do we do with everyone else? And uh, why do we close off the door to everyone else who wants to experience music? Um, and also, those people who did survive and did make it, how much more could they have learned if they also learned those skills? So I think it's it's really important to to think about the impact that we have on our students um, in all the different um, spectrum of aptitude. So mm -hmm. aptitude, music aptitude is distributed um, normally among the population. So about sixty percent are average, twenty percent are low, and twenty percent are high. And we want to teach. Um, you know, we want to differentiate our instruction in a way that it works for all of the different levels of aptitude. Um, and so that's, you know, one of the tenets of, of music learning theory, it differentiates instruction. Mm. So um, I think a lot of kids also, now we're finding out that a lot of kids have visual problems. <laughs> that's a whole another topic. Uh, but when we ask them to read or decode notation, because they're not really reading, the only time you would, it would count as reading is when you actually understand it. Um, I like to tell the story when I was in fourth grade, we had to learn Russian in, a, in school. And um, it was like a, a mandatory subject. And I was the best reader in the class. I didn't understand the word of what I was saying, but the teacher always picked me to read because I had this, the best pronunciation. And I had, I had known the rules of, you know, pronouncing things. <laughs> and I always say, I tell that story because it's a great example of what we do to our students when we teach them to decode notation from the very beginning, a notation that they do not understand the structure of, they do not understand the syntax. Um, and maybe they'll figure it out later, or maybe they won't. A lot of them don't. Um, and then they, they stop taking lessons mm. or they have bad memories of, of lessons. So it's really important that we start asking those questions and answering those questions. And they're really hard questions and it's really hard to change. It's so, so hard to change. Um, it's so difficult to leave the lesson books behind um, or to, to question uh, the sequencing of concepts in them and to say to the parent, well, we have to skip these pieces because they're not supposed to be here. <laughs> Um, because the student is not going to experience success with those pieces. Mm -hmm. And we know from, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of the book. Uh, somebody said that if a student doesn't experience a 70% success uh, in the first try of, of learning something new, they will not be motivated to, to do it again. Mm -hmm. So we have to, we have to teach in a way that students experience continuous success mm -hmm. and that has very clear implications of, you know, long-term, how they're going to be learning. Mm. This subject and, and all other subjects, really. I've heard even 85% success, 15% failure, not specific to music, but in other domains, like across, across different domains, um, especially around motor skills, um, which was 
especially coming from uh, music, you know, a music background and teaching and learning music. I was so surprised it was that high because I'm sure we've all had the experience of, of having much lower success rates in trying to teach ourselves something new um, or mm. in how perhaps how we were yeah. taught or, or how we've taught. Wow, that's great. That's that's a yeah, quote. Yeah, and also that to, um, oh, I was going to say, yeah, that that's amazing. That's a quote to pull out of uh, pull out of this conversation, right? Um, for our little little thing to cut out for socials. That's <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I'd heard I heard something similar when you were learning. Like, what really gets us kind of super focused or in the zone or in flow? That there's this if you're pushing for a challenge that's four percent more challenging than what your ability is. So it's like an attainable challenge, and that really helps us focus. Where if it's not enough of a challenge, we get bored. And if it's much too challenging, you know, higher than that, you know, 50% or higher failure rate, you know, then it's very stressful and, um, and, and agitating. So it's like finding the sweet spot that kind of keeps us super, super focused and growing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Celia, I'm sorry, I think I, I cut you off. You were, you were about to say something else. Oh, yeah, I was no, it's <laughs> totally fine. I was going to say, uh, uh, something about movement as well, mm. how integral, uh, integral uh, it is to learning music um, and how little of it we still see happening in lessons. Uh, rhythm is movement, rhythm is in the body. And unless we get up in, in different ways, um, we're just not going to have the same understanding of uh, the, it's called space audiation. <laughs> <laughs> You know, as as music keeps going, there's there's always a space between notes, and uh, how do we feel that space is really integral to the way we perform, um, and and the kind of musicality we perform with. So Gordon's uh, learning music theory quotes um, lots of movements, activities based on uh, Laban's effort of movements, which. It's for time and weight and space. Um, and it's really important to be able to move in flow um, and feel both, you know, resistancy as well as free, more free and lightness in, in flowing. Uh, because all of these are qualities of our, you know, of our musical performance and understanding. Um, we just don't really see them being talked about or taught. Uh, when we talk about rhythm, we traditionally, um, or not traditionally, but you know, based on the method books, we see a lot of clapping and counting. Well, there's a lot of problems with that. First of all, rhythm is not counting. Um, you know, rhythm is either double or triple or, you know, uh, unusual. Um, and, and also clapping is a stopping motion, you know, and it doesn't provide any flow unless you clap like this with a certain mm-hmm. word. Uh, motion. So all of these things, I think some, some people are figuring it out. And of course, uh, some teachers like Dal Crow's teachers, um, you know, preach this and then they teach that way. Uh, but it, again, it's not really how most, uh, teachers teach mm. still. Hmm. Yeah. And I had read, it may have been that same book, this is your brain on music, kind of understanding how we process like embodied movement of, you know, walking and dancing, drumming, what, as opposed to when we're just decoding notation and counting something out is like a totally different process. And so much, yeah, that happens a lot. And here too, band and orchestra classes. Oh, we're going to work on rhythm. And it's, you know, counting out rhythms off of flashcards, which is an important skill to have for lots of people. But that's not, yeah, the embodiment of rhythm. Hmm. 
Well, yeah, and the theory says, you know, and I think in, in that there's enough research there and, and experience that shows that uh, developing audiation will, you know, develop better readers and uh, in general. I mean, it leads to better reading skills and better literacy in, in general. Um, it just, it's done the opposite way. <laughs> You don't start with the reading. The reading evolves the result of your understanding. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that because you start to recognize some of these patterns and you predict like you understand where this is likely to go and that helps you, you know, read That's part of it. But also, uh, you know, Gordon's um, learning theory includes specifically pattern instruction. Mm. So there's rhythm patterns um, that are sequenced and there's uh, tonal patterns that are also sequenced. You know, we start with major and minor and tonic and dominant then we and subdominant and, and so on. And we go on and on. Hmm. Well, there's so much to explore with music learning theory. There's so many details, which I love. And many of our listeners are musicians and music educators, and I'm sure there are many heads nodding, <laughs> hopefully listening to this, um, and maybe some heads scratching and, and, and more to look into. Some of our listeners are also may not identify as musicians, We've talked about the idea of everyone being a musician, but they may not consider themselves to be performers or educators. Um, when we talk about experiencing music, which is a, a, you know, I think a lifelong journey of the different ways we can experience music. But what would you suggest for people to, you know, if you could sprinkle some magic fairy dust into people's lives and give them some ideas, whether they consider themselves musicians or not, about deepening their experience of music as opposed to their learning about music, uh, what would some of your favorite suggestions be? Great question, and I haven't thought about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but I would say, um, you know, if we're talking to, well, I'll make an analogy. If you meet a person and you may think they're very nice, um, but you don't really know them yet. So you kind of like them, but you don't know them. So you don't really make the extra effort to um, hang out with them. You know, you hang out with them if it so happens. Uh, but you know, but the, if you get to know them, the more you get to know them and, and, you, and you love them, um, the deeper the connection you feel with them. Uh, we, it's the same process with music. The more you understand music, the more you'll enjoy it and the more different. Um, I think it's so to be a, a well-rounded listener, if you're not a musician yourself, it's really important to listen to lots of different styles of music to experience different uh, ways of uh, how music is made um, and to not just focus on, on one genre. Um, and then the other thing I, I'm going to say is that it's really important to sing. <laughs> Even if you think you can't, um, you know, take some singing lessons. Um, I think, you know, one of the first things that we do in music learning theory is being able to always keep in your mind the resting tone or the tonic or however someone may call it out there. But the, that one pitch that is essential to the piece of music that you're listening to. So if you yourself can do that vocally, it kind of grounds you in the music that you're listening to. Um, and, and you can, uh, again, relate to it and, and understand it much better. Hmm. Well, that was an excellent response. I, yeah. I love the idea of a relationship. It reminds me of 
some research around, and hopefully I explain this <laughs> adequately, but around the idea that when people hear music and I um, relate in some way or like feel or experience an emotion associated with the music that they've found that it's similar to how they would view a person as having an emotion. And so it's been proposed that the music creates almost like a temporary like consciousness that we relate to. We almost view the music's emotions or the qualities of the music as if it was the qualities of a person in terms of how we, um, mm. how, how that happens in our cognition. There's similarities towards um, that, it, it being personified. And so I think viewing a, it as a relationship that develops is an excellent analogy that um, mm. I think lots of people will be able to find really accessible as well. Um, because, you know, developing relationships is exciting and valuable and worthwhile but it can also be uncomfortable at times <laughs> or intimidating and i think there's lots lots there for for folks including myself to think about and it's never too late to pick up an instrument mm -hmm. <laughs> you yep. know for music lovers who are curious and want to have that deeper connection yeah absolutely sure. and i mean as a as a voice coach, I also love what you said about singing and that we all have an instrument mm -hmm. all the time. We don't have to go anywhere or do anything to have access to an instrument and to have access to music in our own minds as well mm -hmm. as in our bodies. Yeah. And I like how you talked about listening, you know, opening up, listening to different genres of music and to understand it. I mean, I really like to think about finding experiences where people are really enchanted by the music and it draws you in, that there's so many, I think, well-meaning, you know, courses or things are like how to listen to classical music or how to listen to jazz. And so much of it is just that terminology on the outside. It's like, well, you can't appreciate this music unless you understand the names of the mechanics or the form or this style. And like that stuff seems to come later. It's like if you wanted to get someone interested in, you know, being a baseball fan, you wouldn't just like make them memorize statistics. You like, you know, go to the ballpark or whatever, you know, how people get drawn into the experience of it. And then once you're really drawn in, then you may be more interested in the labels and the mechanics and exactly where things came from. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of a, a misfire sometimes where it's like, oh yeah, how to, how to listen to classical music. And, you know, you're getting to those things around the, the, the edges, the terminology rather than really, is that how you said, uh, uh, understanding the music was that the, is that the term that you used learning about music yeah, learning, rather learning than about learning music, music than music itself yeah, that <laughs> language analogy i've heard that before and it was a little confusing but when you mentioned the the reading being able to pronounce something and read it but not understand it that's a perfect that's perfect analogy that i've been there and done that yeah yeah well, are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? I mean, you've already given them many thoughts, but any requests you'd like to make of them? Uh, anything else you'd like to say? Uh, well, yes, have more music in your lives. <laughs> music really improves life and improves human yeah. beings. That's my firm belief, and that's what I, why I do what I do. Awesome. awesome. I had one, yeah, one more, but maybe this is even a quick subject. I know with the, um, that... But both of you have, um, in, in your practice, both of you teach groups of young children online, which to both of you, it sounds like, you know, that may be part of your everyday week. But for a lot of us, that sounds like, how is that even, 
like how how is that even possible so yeah i know you've got a some yeah classes you're doing another yeah new programs you're unrolling but yeah i'd like to hear about how that how that works with the little ones um what that experience is like teaching them teaching them online lauren you want to go first yeah well I was going to say that I think that creativity and and improvisation really are really the keys to making that possible, um, in my opinion. <laughs> I think there's also many different ways to do it. I think, you know, so many people think, as you said, like, how can that even be possible? But then once you open up that world of possibility... There are even within there, even within that world or within music learning theory, there are different variations on on the approach and on on different ways it can work. But I will say that the approach of turn to this page and everyone do this with this finger right now is not how I do it. <laughs> um, I've talked in other episodes about. Uh, a bit more about the specifics and there's so why don't I turn it over to to Siliana because you know, we have different approaches, per, perhaps. Um, and I'm, cu- I'm curious to hear what you'd say. Absolutely. I agree with the, with what you said. And uh, I, I think that's not really how we want to teach, even if we were in person anyway. Uh, but, you know, um, I know you guys are not airing this um, on video, but um, when you're on uh, virtually, you can disappear. Mm. And that's fun for kids. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you could do all sorts of things on screen that you can't do in person. And um, again, I'm going to quote research. Mm. Uh, we know from research that even if the child doesn't seem engaged, doesn't look engaged, they are hearing what's happening. And they are like little sponges and, and things are entering their brain. Even if there's some someplace in the other side of the room and they're not really looking at the teacher, they're hearing. And, um, you know, they are absorbing. We love to talk about absorption, <laughs> and especially in the earliest of the early childhood music. Um, kids don't really, it's not in their nature to, to be focused and engaged um, looking, but they are absorbing. Mm-hmm. And this is a very important period for them. So um, in terms of specifically to piano instruction, um, I'm very well equipped with uh, many different cameras from different angles. I can split my screen in three and four parts, in two parts, however many parts. Um, this, and actually, the student can get even a better view when they can look at my hand from both the left and the right and the top. <laughs> so um, for me, it doesn't really um, come as an issue, but I know that um, many people need convincing. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to imagine. Mm-hmm. But I say just try it and, and see how mm. it is. And there's a really important point you bring up that compliance does not equal absorption. <laughs> you know, and are we training for compliance and for the appearance of stillness, which is actually the opposite of what we're trying to do? We're trying to encourage, like, we're trying to activate motor activity and yet, and, and music. And then we, and then it often appears that we're actually training for silence and stillness and compliance as opposed to the, as opposed to other skills. And I think that uh, an openness to the different ways that that can look, you know, and I think, and, and when it's online, uh, the parent is having a different view into the child's experience in, in the home 
you know, then, uh, you know, many parents don't see their child at school or in, in their extracurricular classes. They might, see them, see, they might see them in some extracurricular classes, but not usually as closely and as intimately as they might see them um, online. And I think that sometimes the expectations of what it will look like and sound like and be like and how quickly the child will progress or what we view as progression even... Um, I think having a great deal of open-mindedness about that can be important, especially in groups, because kids learn so much from listening to each other. So if the goal is, is that they are going to be like furiously practicing their own pieces the whole time, and that's what engagement is, um, that's one very, <laughs> that's one picture of it, right? But a child that is looking around and not seeming to listen, but they're, they're, checking out what their peers are doing and they're, they're engaged uh, in their own creative processes and their own learning processes. I find sometimes their learning can seem non-linear. It can seem like they're bouncing all over the place or like, uh, like they're not focused or disciplined or, or dedicated. Mm. The, you know, those kinds of words can sometimes come up. But that I've found that often when I've had patience with those sorts of students that... Uh, sometimes they all of a sudden kind of spring ahead. And if I'd asked them to go through uh, what we view as like the progression of a lesson book, that let's say, if, I, if I'd asked them to go linearly through that, it actually pro probably would have been slower. Whereas it seemed a little murky or unsure, and then they want to try a piece that is... Uh, you know, much further ahead in the book and that actually their progression over the long term, as you were saying, when we look at it in a long term time horizon, as opposed to what are they, you know, how are they changing today in this lesson? If we think, okay, well, how are they changing in this month? That's still sometimes too short. Sometimes it's over months um, or, you know, over the whole year or many years that you see this beautiful nonlinear um, mm. progression. And our brains aren't designed to be able to predict <laughs> exponential growth, uh, but it happens. And it's amazing wow. to see. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, I've seen that with some of my older so students too. I've had said, to like, yeah. you know, change how I teach. I have some kids that are very enthusiastic about doing something that's, you know, too hard for what, you know, we need to be doing. And I was realizing that I was getting in the way being like, oh, we need to do these things first instead of just like taking the, the ones that are that enthusiastic and just like letting them, letting them loose and filling in some things along the way as, as needed. Um, but like we said, about the the community, how kids learning in groups, and that's I mean that's all of us since being such you know social social animals. Miss Siliana was talking about you know that you know connecting with your voice, and for a lot of people it may be more you know even as a first entry point you know to join a community choir, you know percussion ensemble, something where you can really feel that you know the the community because I know a lot of people have had issues with their music lessons just feeling so isolated. So it's really cool what you're both doing, but making that the, the community experience from a young age, because that's really what gets a lot of us hooked. Hmm. So, you know, it's the people as much, if not more than the music. Yeah, and we have so much time. I often think about this. Uh, we, life is so long for the child, for the growing child. We really are not uh, limiting them by not starting, you know, not uh, requiring uh, reading uh, music notation or decoding the music notation when they're four years old or even six years old. They have so much time and 
developing their love and desire to learn is so much more important than filling their brains with fact information. I think that's that's a good closing thought for me. <laughs> I would yeah. agree. Right. Yeah. Speaking of compliance, you know, that's broader concepts with education in general. I, mean, I was very compliant and memorized facts in history class, and I don't remember any of them now. I don't know what the point was other than learning to be compliant temporarily. Anyway, that's a whole other episode. Uh, Siliana, where can people connect with you or uh, if you can point us to your website or socials? Which will also be in the show notes, but for those who uh, who have headphones yeah. on, they're on the go, uh, where should they look for you? For now, just Instagram. Siliana um, Studio is my handle. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess in the show notes, uh, I will give you the link to sign up to my email list where you'll yeah. find out and what's the upco- demo class what's the upcoming cl- class that you're enrolling for you'd mentioned to us off air um for kids four to six years old uh, beginners um uh, in piano and audiation mm-hmm. and it's online yeah. and um plenty of launch sometime in march or april but i'll be doing demos before that mm-hmm. And that's one of the big advantages of online. You know, it might not be practical for someone to fly across the country or the world to come to your studio every week for an in-person lesson, but you can have access Absolutely. to Absolutely. One of yeah. our, yeah, my kids teacher, one is Canada and the other one's in Mexico. Oh, wow. So. Feel very lucky that mm-hmm. we can be with them. That's good. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for the time and for the learning and perspectives. Thank you for having me. It's such a joy spending this hour with you and and discussing this topic.